Um, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to John 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. And while you are turning there, I want to give you a quick update on our missionaries, Grant and Ray's, um, whom we have sent back in September to uh, the land of Hungary. And uh, that's the country, not the state of being. Um, they are, uh, we had a good conversation with them yesterday and um, just talking through some different things. And they are uh, doing really well. Um, they wanted me to express uh, just their thanks for your prayers. They were exceptionally excited about the cards that you all sent over the Christmas holidays. Uh, we collected some cards for them and sent them to them. Um, but they are uh, very encouraged by the way that this church is continuing to hold the rope for them, uh, continue to encourage them. Uh, maybe you're thinking right now, you know, I haven't done a good job of connecting with them since they've been gone. Well, it's never too late. And so what I want to encourage you to do is uh, take some time uh, this week, next week, uh, shoot them an email, um, write them a letter. Uh, if nothing else, just make sure that you are consistently praying for them. We have some of their prayer cards in the back. Uh, grab one of those on the way out. Put it on your fridge. Uh, put it somewhere. Uh, where, put it in your Bible. Uh, and make sure that you make praying for Grant and Ray's and Baby Sullivan a part of your normal uh, rhythms of prayer as you go to the Lord. And if you don't have their information, we're happy to give it to you. Uh, we would be happy to do that and uh, give you the contact information. Uh, you can go to the connect table after the service and maybe Noah can go over there and we'll get you connected if you need uh, the further uh, contact details. But all that to say, uh, they are very encouraged and they are doing really well. They'll be doing, I asked them to put together another video update in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and so we could show that to you on a Sunday gathering. Um, so you can look forward to seeing that soon, Lord willing. Today we're going to be in John 18, 1 through 11. I'm going to read the passage for us. I'm going to then pray and ask for God's help. And uh, as I mentioned, I would encourage you to pray for me as well. So John 18, verse 1, would you hear now the word of God? When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Glorious God, the triune God who created all things and holds all things together, we come to you this morning to give you praise, to receive instruction, to have our hearts renewed, changed, and transformed. So I ask God that you would do what only you can do through our time. May this time be encouraging to those that need it. May it be convicting for those who need it. Father, we ask that you would work in this gathering for our good, our joy, and your glory. And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So over the past few chapters of John's gospel, we have seen Jesus make some extraordinary claims uh, packed full of some extraordinary promises. He gives these promises and these claims uh, during his time with his disciples in the upper room. We looked at that for many weeks. And these promises were meant to offer his disciples comfort and assurance because Jesus knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew that he was headed to the cross and he would leave his disciples in the way that they knew him. Uh, then during the four weeks of Advent, we had the opportunity to uh, really get an in-depth look at John 17, which is regarded as one of the most profound chapters in the gospel. Uh, this chapter taught us more about the great prayer that uh, Jesus prayed the night before he was betrayed. Uh, the prayer, often referred to as the high priestly prayer, really reveals Jesus' deep concern for his people, his love for those whom the Father had given him. But we also saw that Jesus is unapologetically committed to the will of the Father. I mean, he has committed himself to whatever the Father has ordained his path. We also saw that Jesus prayed for unity for his people, and there were some um, qualifications for that unity. Uh, we looked at the unification of truth, truth being, uh, being a, a core principle, a foundation in the way that God's people are unified. And then now, in chapter 18, it brings us to the last section of John's gospel account. Remember, John is an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. He's, he's writing from firsthand experience. He, he sees exactly what's going on and, and writes these things down later. And here's where we see the final moments of Jesus' life before he bore the wrath of our sin on the agonizing cross of Calvary. Throughout history, some have tried to argue that Jesus' death was merely incidental, occurring by chance. They would be happy to categorize Jesus as a zealot, as someone who was just uh, causing a bunch of 
uproar and then face death because he would not adhere to the law of his day. But as we look at this passage, we will see that Jesus was not a victim of his circumstances, nor was he a careless fugitive who failed to successfully evade his assailants. Instead, we see Jesus' motives and moves are calculated. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Nothing happens outside of the predetermined plan of God the Father and the predetermined will of God the Son. The title of our message today is Control and Compassion in the Face of Betrayal. Control and Compassion in the Face of Betrayal. And my goal today is to help us to grow in our understanding of the depths of God's love for us as we are reminded of the intentionality of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who willingly went to the cross to die the death that we deserve. Look with me, look with me at verse 1 as we observe the control of Christ. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So stop right there, and let's make some observations. So Jesus and his disciples have now moved on from the upper room. They've taken the opportunity to go towards the cross, and they've stopped now in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane here has many symbolic details that we must take note of. If you think back to the original garden, the Garden of Eden, and this is where sin entered the world, where the first Adam failed. And what we see here is Jesus kind of making new and redefining what should have happened in the garden. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes helps point these details out. I didn't come up with these my own. But I want to make note of these here. Uh, first, we see that the first Adam began life in a garden. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came at the end of his life to a garden. In the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the garden that Jesus is now approaching, he overcomes sin. He does something far greater than the first Adam. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. We'll see here too that in Eden, and remember that Adam, he hid himself. He chose sin, he, he hides. But here we will see Jesus reveals himself. He stands firm. He says, I, I am he. I am the one you're looking for. We also see in Eden the sword was drawn. In, in Gethsemane, the sword with, was sheathed. James Montgomery Boyce explains this thought well. And he says, quote, Adam and Eve by their sin plunged the race, human race, into misery. 
They fell and carried their progeny over the cliff of sin into destruction, meaning they took all of humanity with them. Christ, on the other hand, stood firm. He did not sin, nor did he shrink from his work. As a result, he saved all from the fa- all whom the Father had given him. In Adam, all were lost. But Christ could say, those you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost. Church, do you see that Christ fixes all that Adam ruined? Christ he comes and he restores all that sin has destroyed. And Jesus goes into a garden to begin his journey to the cross, punctuating the redemption he is about to bring. We also must make note of the significance of the brook of Kidron here. Uh, Kidron was a brook that did not always hold water. Sometimes it would be dry, but when there were heavy rains, it would gather water. But there was a drain that ran from the temple to the brook of Kidron that would take the blood of the sacrifices down to dispose of them. Now, this time was the time of Passover. And some would say that there were over 200,000 lambs that were slain during this time of Passover. Think about the blood. During this time, the brook of Kidron would have looked bright red. It would have been uh, full of the blood of those lambs. So Jesus intentionally takes his people over that brook that is blood-stained, showing his people, putting an image in their mind that I now will be the final lamb that is slain, that will take away the sins once and for all for my people. I mean, what beautiful imagery, the calculated steps of the Savior, the control of our God. It's important to note also that John leaves out some details that some of the other gospel writers include, and uh, many, uh, there's some time gaps that we have from verse 1 to verse 2. There's two major details that attentive readers will notice. One, John omits uh, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you recall, right, he prays, and uh, Luke tells us that he, he prays so hard, he's in so much agony that he, he uh, sweats drops of blood. We also note that uh, John omits the detail that Judas uh, betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The other gospel writers say that Judas uh, kissed Jesus on the cheek, a a very, very low way of betrayal. Uh, We are to greet one another with the friendly holy kiss, but Judas uses it to betray the Savior. The question is, why is that? Why would John leave these things out? Well, first, we should note that While John's account agrees with the main points of the gospel and the story of Jesus, he notices things from a different point of view, just as any eyewitness would do. If 
you and I, if four of us were to go and watch a, a certain sequence of events, we would remember different details based on personality, based on who we are and the way that we saw things. So uh, this actually helps to fill in some gaps of the other gospel writers. Uh, second, we should note that uh, John's gospel comes after the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he is likely filling in details that were left out to help to give a fuller picture of what was already told. So knowing what we know from the other gospels, we can get a full picture of the story taking place. Jesus goes into this garden. He goes with his disciples. He spends time praying, asking God the Father if there was another way to accomplish redemption. Uh, Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 42, he says that Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. So we ask, is there another way, God? Is there another way to secure salvation? But then he goes on to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has settled the case. He's made his resolve. He is headed to the cross. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 2 through 3. The text says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas has been privy to this spot before. It's a place where Jesus has gone frequently with his disciples. I mean, the level of betrayal here is just far beyond comprehension. I mean, imagine this man who takes the intimate details of the Savior and uses them against him. This was a place that Jesus frequently visited. I remember Jesus has said many times that, uh, that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no home. I mean, this was somewhere where Jesus went to probably get away from the crowds. Uh, probably somewhere he went to uh, get some quiet time, some rest, some solitude, to be able to pray and spend time with his closest people. And Judas knew that Jesus would go there. But Jesus knew that Judas would know that he would go there. See, Jesus sets this up. If you recall, Judas has been sent out back in chapter 13 by Jesus. Before they observed the, the, um, the supper, Jesus sends him out and says, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. He says, go. Now, this gives Judas the time to kind of set things up, to likely go and tell uh, the Pharisees and the authorities that, that here's what's going on. It's about to be some quiet time. You can go get Jesus without the crowds seeing. Remember, that was their greatest fear is that the crowds 
would get upset because they arrested Jesus. But Jesus knew. He goes. It's kind of like if you're playing hide and seek, right? You never go to the the place where someone's going to look first. You try to think one step ahead. Where won't they look? But Jesus does the exact opposite here. I mean, these are not the actions of a man trying to evade arrest. Jesus is not trying to hide. I mean, he goes to the first place that Judas would have thought to look. And we can deduce from the tools they had, the lanterns, the torches, the weapons that John writes, that they likely went preparing for a battle. They likely didn't expect to see Jesus immediately. They might have thought that they had to do some searching. They might have thought that they had to go uh, play a little hide and seek to, to kind of hunt Jesus down. But Jesus is right there. We also read that there was a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So Judas is guiding these men, the soldiers, the Jewish religious leaders to Jesus. I mean, talk about a motley crew. But as many say, right, a common enemy makes the best of friends. You got the Romans. You've got the Jews, the soldiers, the religious leaders. And they're all going after the Savior. Soldiers would have been numbered anywhere from 200 to 600. Uh, some say maybe even 1,000. Uh, regardless, we can just say it was a large group. And picture Jesus and his disciples in this garden and watching them make their way down the valley, torches in hand. And they had plenty of time to leave, to go. This wasn't a, a secret ninja mission. They came with torches blazing. We're we're coming to get him. We're after him. It wouldn't have been very hard to see them coming. But if you picture now, just for a moment, Jesus and his 11, just standing there. And then these hundreds of soldiers and religious leaders with weapons and torches and it's kind of this picture of good versus evil and this this great a picture of of the way that evil men will bond together in great numbers to enact their evil deeds but it is those who stand with christ who will be victorious those who stand with the savior who will be victorious now and all the way to the end. And why is that? Because the control of the Savior is unwavering even when outnumbered by hundreds. Look at what Jesus does. If you look at verse 4, we read, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. I mean, just stop right there. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He's not taken off guard. He's not surprised. 
He knew exactly what was about to go down. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Remember back, right? We just talked about it. In Eden, Adam, what did he do? He hid himself. He ran from God. But here, our Lord boldly presents himself. He boldly says, who are you seeking? Now, Jesus already knew who they were after, but Jesus wants them to say it. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in the original Greek, this simply states, I am. This is the, 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 the great I am. The tetragrammaton. This is the same covenant name for God that is used in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks God, who should I tell them who sent me? Remember, God says, go, release my people, get my people from Pharaoh. It's going to be an exodus, a deliverance of my people. And God tells Moses, when they ask you who sent you, you, you say, I am. I am who I am. Look at the imagery here. I mean, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who will deliver his people from slavery to sin and the devil once and for all. I mean, he's proclaiming loud and clear, I am God. The proclamation of deity here is extraordinarily clear. We can't read this, we can't read the Gospel of John uh, without just punctuating the fact that Jesus has said, point blank period, I am God. And here we see it again. So what do they do when Jesus has made this great proclamation? When he has stated, I am the one you're looking for. I am God. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And then in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So these guys are knocked over by the words of Christ. Now, when it says that they fell to the ground, both scholars would agree that all of them fell to the ground. We're talking about burly soldiers here. We're talking about the, the, the men of men in their day. I mean, these aren't some soft rubbernecks. Uh, these guys are, are real. And, and here they are from the words of Christ getting knocked over because of what Jesus has simply said. Listen to me. The words of Christ have power. The words of Christ are beautiful. Many would say that this is a, a momentary unveiling of Christ's glory. Another miracle, you might say, before the final miracle of redemption. 
J.C. Ryle is helpful here, and he says, quote, this was a miracle purposely wrought at this juncture in order to show the disciples and their enemies that the Lord was not taken because he could not help it or crucified because he could not prevent it, but because he was willing to suffer and die for sinners, end quote. A friend, if you were here this morning and you don't understand that reality, that Jesus Christ willfully endured the cross to, to secure the salvation of his people. I mean, my prayer is that uh, that would fall on you today. And maybe you ask, well, well, how do I know if that's meant for me? How do I know if I'm one of God's people? My answer to you would be repent and believe. Don't wrestle with the questions, how do I know if I am? No, respond to the message of the gospel. Christ will hold you. Christ will keep you. Christians, I want you to look here the power and control of your Savior. I want you to think for a moment about the, the king in this situation. I mean, speaking such powerful words to knock back hundreds of men before he allows them to take him and beat him and crucify him to the point of death. Now, praise be to God, we know that our Savior did not stay dead, but he endures what's ahead for your salvation. But Jesus isn't done displaying his control. In verse 7, we read, so we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Verse 9 tells us that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. At first glance, it seems odd that Jesus would ask his captors, whom do you seek? Again, I mean, they've already said it. They've already told him, hey, we're after you. He's already responded, all right, it's me, I, I am. And they've been knocked to the ground because of this. I mean, he might have given them a little time to kind of get themselves together. But I, I think that Jesus wanted to uh, just really narrow their focus, really narrow the focus on him, have them repeat even that he was the one that they were after. He wants to narrow his captor's motivation, really wants to ensure that they tell themselves again that they are there for Jesus alone. And simply put, Jesus solidifies his disciples' freedom from the hands of their captors here. He knows that at this point in the disciples' lives, 
They need to be safe. They need to witness the cross. They need to witness and experience the, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They need to do some things. And now is not the time for them to face captivity. Luther comments here and he says, quote, This was a great, as great a miracle as that of casting the party to the ground. He says, to tie the hands of the party of Judas and prevent them touching his disciples was a mighty exercise of divine power, end quote. It's what Luther says and what I would agree with is that he, he saves his disciples from capture. He makes sure that he is the one that they have their focus on and whom they take. John reminds us why he does this by writing this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Or in other words, since he said it, it happened. I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. I mean, this is the promises, these are the promises of Christ just on display. I mean, this is an illustration of all that Jesus has promised. And brothers and sisters, if the disciples could rest even so tangibly right here on this promise, why can't you rest on the promises of God? I mean, God's word is true, friends. Christ's words are real. What he has promised to us, he will provide to us. And that comes in all different sizes, shapes, and forms for each of us. But here we see what Jesus has said is happening. What Jesus has promised is certain. So we can rest on the words of Christ, brothers and sisters. We can trust the words and the care of our Savior. So we continue to see the control of Christ. Here we also see the compassion of Christ as he shows his deep compassion for his people. See, Jesus not only controls his people, but he has compassion for his people. Jesus takes care of all whom are his. Jesus will not lose his sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd who takes care of his people with utter control and utter compassion. But we also see Jesus showing compassion to his enemies in a way. I mean, listen, Jesus could have crushed his enemies. I mean, he could have brought fire from the skies. He could have brought an earthquake to, to swallow up these hundreds of men where they stood. He could have called a legion of angels to wipe these guys out. I mean, he could have just spoke, and they could have been destroyed. That's not what Jesus does here, because Jesus knew what he was on the way to do would be far greater than an act of destruction at that point. Jesus knew that the, the final consummation, the, the final 
reality of his glory would be on the cross. Where he and he alone would be the only one that could take away the sins of his people. Would absorb the wrath of God once and for all, for all whom are his. Jesus goes to the cross, friends. Knowing all the pain, knowing all the agony, knowing the shame, enduring the wrath of God the Father. I mean, the the pain and the agony, the physical torment was horrible. I mean, death on a cross was something to be despised. But the separation for that moment when he absorbed the wrath of God, And to endure the wrath that he had never felt before was far worse than anything we could ever imagine. But Jesus knows this is the only way. And I believe that Jesus had a people on his mind when he went. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, your name is included there. What? A beautiful reminder of the security we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reminder of the compassion our Savior has for us. Why would we serve anyone else? Why would we go and choose anything other than servanthood and worship to God? Why would we choose lesser things in this world? Why would we not say, I am yours and you are mine, Jesus? Take me as I am and do with me what you will. I mean, that is the call, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, he he goes. He says, I will die for these people. Verse 10 reminds us that this isn't the way we would probably do things, though. I mean, Peter's a good reminder, I know, to me, of my humanity. Look at what happens in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. And John tells us that the servant's name was Malchus. Uh, My kids and I were, we were during family worship, and my wife were reading through this and asked the kids, well, you know, why, why do you think they said Malchus? And Um, Really, the reason would be, one, uh, probably when John wrote this, Malchus was probably dead at this point, but but also to kind of put some, hey, this is some authenticity here. This was a a real person. Remember Malchus? Uh, Church history shows us that uh, Josephus, who was a historian, mentions Malchus. So it's not just the canonical uh, writings that we have that mention his name, but like this really happens. I mean, this is just... Uh, the, the confidence we can have in the, the Word of God that it's real, that it's authentic. And Jesus then, immediately after Simon Peter pulls out the sword, he, he cuts the ear of, of this servant, really trying to get in the way and saying, like, you can't have him. I mean, I don't know what Peter was thinking. They were, they were outnumbered. But he had just seen Jesus knock them all down. So, I mean, no telling what's going on in Peter's mind here. Luke informs us that Jesus does something of 
utmost compassion that I definitely would not have done. He heals the ear of this servant. He heals the ear immediately. What compassion Jesus shows to his opponents. I mean, this is kindness unmatched. Also, let's think about what these soldiers must have been thinking. They've been brought here to this man. They've been instructed to arrest. He's knocked him over. He's come forth and probably the easiest arrest they've ever had. And now he's healed the ear of a man whom a sword has struck. I mean, I can't imagine the emotional wrestling that must be going on with these men. But Jesus rebukes Peter. He tells him, now's not the time for the sword. Now, other places, Jesus tells him, you need to get your sword. See, now is not the time, though. Look at verse 11. It says, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. And here's why. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You ever been past the cup? Someone offers you something to drink. I mean, you have uh, two things you can do. You reject that and lay it down or you, you drink it voluntarily. You don't have a, you can receive it. No one can make you drink it. But you accept it. And when we see here the, the cup of wrath that Jesus received and took upon himself, we must think of this in the right theological framework, that it was voluntary. He, he chose. And this is what Jesus says to Peter, no, 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 I must drink this cup. I must endure the shame the suffering, I must go to the cross so that you, Peter, even, can be saved. What a beautiful picture to focus on. Friends, Jesus was not forced to die. Jesus was not taken by surprise. Nothing happened to our great and glorious Savior apart from his willing participation. He goes to the cross. So, a couple of questions for reflection as we close our time this morning. One, I want to ask you, how are you dealing with conflict and betrayal in your own life? How are you dealing with it? Are you modeling the life of our Savior? And I mean, there's, there's two approaches, right, that we, we seem to take. There's two ditches we, we fall into. There's one, the, the sin of passivity, where we just sit back and let things happen and 
just kind of go and whatever happens, happens, and you know, I don't really want to stir the pot. Or, or we're, we're overzealous. We fall into the ditch of always using the sword. And we think that the way to the kingdom is by the sword. And friends, Jesus shows us something much different. We must be people of balance. We, we must be people that preach the word and see that it's a, it's a battle that we fight, but that battle is not against flesh and bone. It's, it's a spiritual battle. As Pastor Gay prayed earlier, we need the hearts of men to be changed. We need a drastic move by the Spirit to remove the hearts of stone and replace them with the hearts of flesh. That they would respond to the gospel. So, how are you dealing with that today? Second question that I would ask you to just ponder and reflect on is are you struggling with the assurance of salvation? Are, are you resting in your works? Are you resting in maybe your ways that you have shown your love for God? Now, our love for God and obedience to God is definitely required and called for in Scripture. But brothers and sisters, as we have talked about many, many times before, why we corporately confess is because we are all still sinners. We fall, we stumble, we sin. The assurance of salvation is based upon Christ and Christ's work on your behalf. Let that be the motivation for you to live and pursue a life of holiness. Say no to the things of the world. Fight sexual temptation. Keep your eyes, your mind pure. They will defile you. Choose righteousness. But if you stumble, rest on this fact that it is Jesus who has complete control. I remind you of John 10, 28, where John, where John writes Jesus' words, and Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, he holds you in his hand, believer. He's got you. It's not your grip on him. It's his grip on you. That should lead us to worship. It should lead us to transformational change, the renewing of our mind, that we live different because we've been set apart to be different. That is what we see here. Moms, dads, young, old, grandparents, rest in the care, the control, the compassion of a Savior who loves you, who will get you through every single day. May we be people that work hard and rest well.
And may we rest well in the fact that we have a Savior who has secured our eternal salvation. Some of it we get to experience now. We get a taste, an appetizer of what it will be like to be with him forever in a perfect relationship. So my encouragement to you is to stand firm in this, the word of God. Stand firm in the promises of Christ. Evaluate your life, decisions you make, perspectives you have on a Savior who willingly died on your behalf. I'll give you a moment to just pause and reflect and maybe write down some things maybe you're thinking about. Maybe pray and ask the Lord to, to help you as the band makes their way to the stage. And uh, after they make their way and get settled, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to uh, just work out whatever he would have for each and every person. So take a moment to pause, reflect before we sing our final song. Oh, Father God, we, we come to you with just thanksgiving. Oh, we thank you that we have a Savior who died for us, who bore the wrath that we deserve after living the life that is now attributed to us as a life of righteousness. Uh, Father, I pray for any who may not know that reality today. Would you draw them to yourself? May they respond to the glorious gospel message that they can never be right with you apart from Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for this opportunity. Lord, would you seal all that has been applied for our joy and your glory? We praise that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you